0: Well, in God's Word this morning, over the last several weeks, we've looked at several different topics. We've looked at wisdom, we've looked at pleasure and possessions, and now, today, we're going to think even further about the subject of work, which is kind of where Solomon started off back in chapter 1. And as it is Labor Day weekend, it seems appropriately timed as well that we should think about this subject. And what I want to show you, as we saw with wisdom and as we saw with possessions and pleasure, when we take good things and we make them into God things, they become really bad things. Do you hear me? When we take good things and we turn them into God things, things that we worship rather than God, they become really bad things. And here's the big idea for today. And If you are a note-taker, today's sermon will be a little more difficult for you because I'm not following a very structured outline today. I just want to pour out my heart to you a little bit through these verses. But here's the big idea for today. Work is important, but it is not ultimate. Work is important, but it is not ultimate. A recent poll reports that Just over 50% of people would define their identity and their purpose with something connected to their vocation, to their job. In 2019, there was a record set for the United States of America, 768 million vacation days went unused in 2019. We can't take time off, even when most of us were working at home. Many of you are still working from home. What is your day like? You wake up and you roll out of bed into the chair that you're going to work in the rest of the day. And then at the end of the day, you roll out of that chair back into your bed. If there was any kind of a, a issue with work and life balance before this season that we're in, now it's gotten really crazy. Work is life and life is work. Well, three times in this text, Solomon gives us the familiar phrase, this is vanity. Now, hear me carefully this morning. Work is not unimportant. You were created to be a worker. But what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us is that you will never relate to your work rightly if you don't relate to God rightly. Millions of people are looking under the sun for what can only be found under the S-O-N, sun, right? Your job is good for a lot of things. It's not good at being your God. The preacher's going to help us get to the root of this this morning. If we were to break down this text and look at it carefully, and this is, this is where you note takers get all excited here, uh, just for a couple paragraphs, we would find that Solomon makes two main statements. He gives reasons for these statements, and then he makes a conclusion for each statement. And the conclusion is practically the same for both statements. Here's the first statement. Ready? Let's break down the text. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Statement number one. The two reasons Solomon hated his toil are found in verses 18 and 19. Seeing that, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Reason number one. Reason number two. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Then there's a conclusion at the end of verse 19. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun This also is vanity. There's a second statement. Look in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Why? Reason, verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Conclusions? Verse twenty-three, number twenty-two. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is not a lot. Look at some subpoints. There are three subpoints underneath this conclusion. Verse twenty-three. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. The next part of verse twenty-three. Even in the night. His heart does not rest. And then the end of verse 23, which is the same as the end of verse 21. This also is vanity and a great evil. That's the structure. Solomon's got two things to say here. I hated all my toil, it caused my heart to despair. It's all vanity. Now, what's the preacher getting at here? It seems kind of simple on the surface, doesn't it? I'm going to work my fingers to the bone my whole life. And then when I'm gone, somebody else is going to figure out what to do with it. And they might be wise or they might be a fool. I'm going to build my whole legacy and I'm trying to impact people in my job. I'm trying to make a difference. And at the end of the day... It's all going to be turned over to somebody else. The projects you're working on right now, the business you're trying to start right now, the research that you're doing right now, whether you're a high powered CEO, whether you're a college student trying to make the grade, whatever it is that would define your work in life right now, one day it'll all be turned over and it'll be somebody else's concern. And when you really stop and think about that, it gets really unsettling. It's vexing, as Solomon says. Where's Kyle? I feel for guys like Kyle Wilson. Sometimes I watch him as he cuts the grass here on the church property. I don't know how long it takes him, but it takes a while. And during the peak time of the year, he's out here every single week for hours on end. And you know what? The grass keeps growing. No matter how many times Kyle cuts it, no matter how beautiful he makes those softball fields out there, Roy, the grass keeps coming back. And someday, Kyle is going to get old and die. Sorry, Kyle. And somebody else will take over cutting that grass. And it will keep growing. Like Kyle never did anything. What's the point of all the things that we're doing in life? It's unsettling, isn't it? We generally spend about half our waking hours at some type of work. And in the end, it's all going to be turned over to somebody else. And who knows what they're going to do about it? Who knows what kind of pride they'll take in the work? Who knows how they will bungle things up? How do you feel about that? When it comes to money, nearly 60% of the time, a family's money is exhausted, gone, spent, By the children of the person who created their wealth. That comes from Roy Williams, the president of wealth consultancy, the Williams Group. He also says in 90% of the cases, it's gone by the time the grandchildren die. Perhaps the most famous example is the Vanderbilt family. Many of you are familiar with that American family, the Biltmore estate down in North Carolina. Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the patriarch of that family, built a fortune on railroads and shipping during the mid-1800s. Adjusted for the size of the economy, he was the second richest American ever, worth about $200 billion, well above Bill Gates. Yet his children, and especially his grandchildren, lived lavishly. They built huge mansions in New York City, Newport, Rhode Island, and elsewhere, and did very little to preserve the fortune that he made. In the 1970s, the family held a reunion. 120 people attended the reunion, and there wasn't a single millionaire among them. You know, they famously asked John D. Rockefeller's accountant, hey, how much did he leave behind? The accountant said, All of it. You've never seen the U-Haul being pulled by the hearse, right? Solomon wants you to realize this morning that losing control over your life's work is inevitable. Think about all the hours that we spend and all the things that we do: that house that we slave over, fixing it up, putting additions. Remodeling. One day it's going to be somebody else's house. Somebody else's property. Wonder how they'll take care of it. One pastor said it like this, Every possession that you have right now eventually will probably be either in a junkyard or at a garage sale. Another person writes it this way. When we were young, we dreamt of a house to buy, a yard to create with, pieces of furniture to possess, and a bank account from which to use for our gain. When we are old, a time comes to sell everything that once represented our dreams of a future. We have to move to an assisted living facility or move in with our kids while someone else uses the drapes that we left on the windows that we used to wash and enjoy. A young woman fills a hope chest with treasures over which she dreams and intends to bring into her future with her man. An elderly woman has long since buried her lovely man and now has to see or give her hope chest away. Most encouraging sermon of the whole year, right? I'm trying to rattle your cage. Absolutely I am. I'm trying to unsettle us in the way the preacher unsettles us. Remember, this is not a sermon from the Gospels. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is the philosophical professor. He wants you to push your assumptions and your conclusions to their ultimate end. And think about them. If work is what you are living for, what does it do to you when you realize that after you die, somebody else is going to do with it whatever they want to? What does that do to you? We have to realize something, Heather Hills. We have to realize where the answer isn't before we can start to see where the answer is. Why do you wake up in the morning? I get up to go to, to go to do a job. If that's what it's about for you, your life is on a very fragile foundation that someone else can just come and squander away in the next generation. By the way, who's the author here? Solomon. Remember his son, Rehoboam, the heir to the throne? He's going to do exactly this. In fact, he's going to squander away ten twelfths of Solomon's kingdom. Gone. Solomon's a prophet here. If you've been reading through Ecclesiastes as we've been going through the, the series, and that's I always encourage you to do that when we're in a series, try to read ahead, try to, to see what's coming you've already begun to realize that along the way in Ecclesiastes, there are some breadcrumbs that God drops into this book along the way to help us with all of the heaviness and all of the pointlessness of life under the sun. And the first such breadcrumb, the first real positive statement in the book, comes in our next sermon. Now, next week, we have Bruce Malone with us for our annual creation focus, but then on the 19th, we will hear Solomon's answer to all of the darkness of chapters 1 and 2. And it will help us to see where he is pointing us to. But that's in two weeks. That's not today. We've already talked about how our work is not in vain in the Lord. We've already talked about in this series how laying up treasure in heaven is more important than laying up treasure on the earth. We've shown passages like Psalm 1611 that tell us where real pleasure, eternal pleasure can be found at the Father's right hand. And who's at the Father's right hand, by the way? Jesus. So this morning, to take us away from life under the sun where all that you accumulate in this life, all of your gain from your work will one day go to somebody else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. To take us away from life under the sun and show us the hope and light of life under the S-O-N sun, I want to take us to Luke's gospel for a few moments. And I want to demonstrate an important application of the teaching of Ecclesiastes. And that important, the important implication is that we put ourselves in the shoes of our fellow man who is lost, who is separated from God, who is under the sun. Because we need, as Christians, to understand the hopelessness and pointlessness, the vanity of life for these people. Why? Because we are called to take them the good news, which can bring them out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of heaviness, the kingdom of pointlessness, the kingdom of meaninglessness, and into the kingdom of light just like it did for us. And Luke 15 can help us think that way. In this chapter, there are three parables. You're very familiar with this. All about something lost. A sheep, a coin, and a son I want to focus on the third for a few minutes this morning because it bears direct connection to our text in Ecclesiastes. How you ask? In Luke 15, we find a father who has worked his whole life and stored up an inheritance for his children. One of these sons asks for the inheritance promptly goes out, and squanders it. How will the person who comes after us treat our long-earned gain? Will he be wise or foolish, Solomon asks? In this case, foolish. How does the lost man or woman deal with such despair? How do they deal with sleeplessness? How do they deal with insomnia over the misery of futility? How do they get by in life while hating what they do and worrying about how it will be squandered? Well, I'll tell you how they deal with it they distract themselves. They entertain themselves. They simply refuse to think about that reality. Blaise Pascal argued this, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them, so as to become happy. But this is not how followers of Jesus live. There's something about Jesus, you remember, in Mark chapter 4 that allows him to sleep soundly in a boat while all around him the earth is falling to pieces. While a storm, a deadly storm, seems that destruction will be imminent. While his disciples around him are afraid and frantic, There is a peace and a joy and a hope that only fills the hearts of those who know him and who have been changed by him. When we think about the squandering of our fortunes and our businesses and our legacies, even as Christians, we might react sinfully and pompously and angrily But that is the exact opposite of the father of the prodigal in Luke 15, isn't it? The son goes out and squanders his inheritance. The father, on his return, is filled with love and forgiveness and joy as his destitute penniless, humbled, repentant son returns to him. And what does he do? He clothes him with the best robe, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and prepares a feast in his honor. Why? Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Sometimes we Christians, and I include me, sometimes we Christians look at lost people in their miserable and vain lives. And we think to ourselves, they're getting what they deserve. That's more like the older brother in the story, isn't it? Self righteous. Glad we're not like that sinner. But we were, weren't we? Weren't we? I remember a brother in Christ who is a nationally syndicated newspaper columnist. I was interviewing him once for a blog. He told me this. The world knows more about what we're against than what we're for. Sure, he would say, we can spend our time cursing the darkness, but wouldn't it be better to light a candle? In other words, we can rant and rave about the sin and the wickedness and the darkness all around us, and for sure it's there. But usually that doesn't bring them to Christ, does it? I'm not saying we should ignore sin and justice in this world. But ask yourself this question in your heart. Do you actually expect lost, blind, miserable sinners to act as anything but what they are? We've been talking in recent days among our pastoral staff about generational changes in our church family and how the demographics of a church changes over time. We've been strategizing and thinking about how to reach out to younger families in our community so we can pass on the faith to the next generation who will hopefully continue to do that to their next generation as they age. But Heather Hills, you do realize that in order to grow as a church... We can't simply just look for other Christians out there who don't go to church and recruit them, right? We grow a church through faithfully and lovingly and prayerfully speaking the gospel to lost people who need Jesus. We grow a church, not by looking for people who are like us, but for coming alongside people who are not like us, with a message that can make them like us. This is one of the profound implications of the message of Ecclesiastes, brothers and sisters, Life under the sun, as Solomon describes it in these chapters, is not primarily about you and me. It is, in a sense, because we live in the same world. We live in a world that's cursed, and we deal with those realities like everyone else. But life under the sun is describing a world without hope, a world without Christ, And we need to see through the eyes of the preacher in Ecclesiastes and understand who they are inside, at their core, the misery that they feel, the pointlessness that they feel. We need to remember who we were before Christ. And then we need to take the gospel to them. One of the reasons we're preaching through this book is to ignite an evangelistic fire in each one of our hearts for the people out there all around us who are miserable, who can't see the point of it all, who are trying to satisfy, trying to fill this enormous void in their hearts with everything that they can and they're unsuccessful. Christ is the missing piece in their lives, brothers and sisters. Jesus makes the difference. Think about Solomon being so vexed, as he says in our text, by the undeserving getting what he had. Then think about Jesus. Jesus didn't fret about the undeserving, did he? The truth is, we were all undeserving of the glory that he had. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12, too, that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and died for people who were undeserving. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not until we got our act together, got all cleaned up, started living life for God. No, when we were still sinners, when we were still under the sun, when we still lived with that miserable, heavy heart over the pointless and futility of everything in life and try to distract ourselves from that miserable reality by entertainment and pleasure and being a workaholic and throwing ourselves into pursuing money and material possessions. And none of it satisfies. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front for our final songs and our leadership team to prepare for the Lord's table. As these folks are moving and coming to the front, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, here is the message of Ecclesiastes for you. One day, you've got to realize it's all going to be taken away from you. Whether it's through getting fired or through retirement, Or death, everything is taken. And if it can all be taken, it isn't worth building your life on that. Right? The Christian gospel wants to tell you, friend, that there is a better way to live, it is through Christ. It deals with the misery the problem of life and purpose. It gives us light in our darkness, hope in our despair, forgiveness in our depravity. And if you want to become a follower of Jesus today and find out what that's all about, we would love to talk to you more after the service today. And so just come and grab me Grab Pastor Trey, grab a Christian sitting near you and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. How do I do that? We'll be glad to talk to you. Or step over here just to the left, that cubicle in the corner of the room, which is a private place where a counselor can sit down and pray with you and take the Bible and show you how to become a follower of Jesus. Fellow believers, what's our takeaway from this text today? A couple of things. First, we don't work for a bottom line. Christians don't work for a bottom line. We don't work for a legacy. We work for nothing less than the glory of God. No matter what it is that you do. If you're a school teacher, like my friend Todd down here, or a CEO, whether you stay at home with your kids, whether you're a high school student, trying to make grades or working at Chick-fil-A. Whatever it is that you do, Christians work for the glory of God. That's why we work. But in addition to the work we must do to make money, to provide for our families, to survive, to give to others that are in need, we must engage. We must engage We must engage in the work of evangelism. We must step out of the shadows of our comfortable Christianity and speak to people about their need for Jesus. We must. We must put away attitudes of self-righteousness or condemnation and welcome lost sinners home, just as the Father does. If we don't, we should be more concerned about the future of this church than the future of our portfolios. If we don't go to the lost with the hope of the gospel, this church and every Bible-believing church will wither and die. And it doesn't take long. Churches are closing their doors every week in this country, all over, Now, I happen to have great optimism with regard to the future of the church because the Lord has promised to build it himself and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So why do churches close? Lots of different reasons. But the church is still being built. Make no mistake. Souls are still being saved. The gospel is just as powerful as when it opened your eyes. Remember, we 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 have to do a better job to going to people who are in darkness. We just have to do a better job of going to people who are in darkness, and that starts right here with Pastor Brian himself. These people are blind. They don't see the light. They live under the sun. They live with this heaviness, this futility, this pointlessness. We don't live like that. They live like that. They try to convince themselves it's not going to happen. They distract themselves, but it's there. Under the surface of every lost sinner is a misery in their soul. They must hear the good news from God's word. They must. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. It's the only way sinners are converted, to hear the word of God. So take it to them. Take it to them, church. You know who I'm talking about. You can picture them right now in your mind. The people you interact with every day, At the grocery store, at the bank, at the gas station, in the cubicle, in the office, next door. The neighbor, across that fence, across that fence. You know who I'm talking about. You can see them. They need someone to take the gospel to them. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it's you. I know that can be scary if that's not a regular habit of your life. If you need someone to go with you to talk to someone, just ask. We'll go. If you need some training in how to share your faith, just ask. We'll help you. And Christ will help you. He's with us forever. Christ is ours. What, that's the greatest blessing of being saved. Christ is ours. And that's a good reason to pause now in our study and praise him. So we'll come back in two weeks and we'll see the first positive statement in the book of Ecclesiastes. Boy, that'll be a great sermon for a change, right? <laughs> Let's be faithful in going out to the world in darkness and taking them light. We've got to do it. Now more than ever. The world's darker today than it was a year ago. Do you realize that? They need the light. And it, the light shines as brightly as it ever has, ever has. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing a song in response to God's word this morning, and then Pastor Trey will come and lead us in the Lord's table.